Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan. So we are here Sunday evening, um, February the 27th. There is obviously a, a lot going on in the world and, and a lot on, on folks' minds, but we're going to, we're going to take a little step back today. Um, what are we, what are we talking about? Yeah, we're really excited about this actually. So, uh, Maureen McInerney, um, is going to join us, um, Maureen Moe is uh, someone I met back in 2018 working on campaigns here in Massachusetts, and she, she stayed in the political world. Um, she, moved back, she moved down to D.C. Uh, a couple of years ago, and she currently works for this organization called the Women's Public Leadership Network. Um, we'll, we'll talk way more about that, this with her, but it's an organization that's dedicated to you know, helping educate, elect, inspire uh, center right women to like get involved in, in politics and hopefully become elected. So we'll dive into um, all of the, what the organization does, why, why she does that type of work with her, but she's someone that I wanted to have on the program for a little while now. I think she's going to provide uh, a, like a really different perspective as, um, as someone that's kind of in the political world still um, as a more conservative woman. Uh, I, I think, I think it's going to, I think, people are going to find it really, her perspective, really interesting. So I'm really excited and grateful that, that she's going to join us tonight. Um, but before we get into that, Ricky, got to remind the people. Absolutely. We've got to remind the people that this podcast is brought to you by the, the hardworking craftsmen at Cannon Hill Woodwork. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. Um, uh, big year, I guess. Uh, that's, that's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram. Uh, you can also visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. You can let them know that we sent you over there. Uh, and also, speaking of Instagram, uh, uh, we released our draft episode last last week, uh, and so we have the the four teams up there on Instagram right now. Uh, you guys can go vote in the comments which which team. The, the teams are anonymous, so you can go vote in the comments. Um, right now about which team of 20th century Americans was the most influential. We're always pushing the boat, whatever it is. Exactly. Exactly. It's always, you know, just get involved, get get involved in Instagram polls, get get out there and vote for us. All right. Uh, Without further ado, let's, let's welcome um, Mo onto the program. All right. Well, we are very excited to welcome Maureen Mo McInerney into the program for this evening. Um, I met Mo back in 2018 when we were both working on campaigns up here in Massachusetts. Um, while those campaigns were ultimately unsuccessful, it was it was good to get to know her, and we got to hang out a little bit and share some some kind of laughs and, and drinks at, at different times. Uh, but now she's down in Virginia, working in the D.C. area. She's working for the Women's Public Leadership Network, and we'll get into what that organization is and you know their mission and why she does that. But um, 
before we get into all that, Mo, thank you for joining us this evening. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, um, we're really excited. So let's kind of start with your journey into politics. You know, you're pretty young and got into politics, like, pretty much like right away, like after after college, and I guess like during college for you. But why, why did you want to get into politics? Like, where, where did that desire come from? Like the, the kind of, how do you know for yourself being like, this is what I want to do to start my career? Yeah. So, um, when I was growing up being raised by engineers, um, in Syracuse, New York, I did not know anything about politics or government until a required class my senior year, um, of high school, which I think is normal for a lot of people. And I had the opportunity to take um, that course through Syracuse University, which was great. I was able to take economics and public affairs um, while still in high school. And it just taught me so much. And they were very big about pushing us out into meeting different people. So um, I had originally applied to and been accepted to Northeastern University as a graphic design major was planning on going there. Um, Once I got there, not that I didn't love my professors and studying art, but um, I was just called to be sort of using it to say something. Um, And so I switched my major to political science and communication studies and ended up with a minor in art. So I was studying political science. Um, I was starting to sort of like form my own opinions through my Northeastern co-ops. I was put at the state house, initially working for Secretary Galvin um, and the tours and government um, education office. And then uh, I started about three days before Governor Baker was sworn in um, into that role. And so when my co-op ended, I went into his office part-time while going back to classes and was first in his press office and then his office of real estate assets. Um, And then my second co-op was with Mass Inc., uh, which is a think tank up on Beacon Hill, uh, the publishers of Commonwealth Magazine and the parent of the Mass Inc. polling group. I stayed with them through my graduation from college and then for about um, another year and a half afterwards before jumping onto my first campaign. Um, that first campaign for me was Peter Tedeschi's congressional race in the ninth district. He was a great, you know, easy to talk about issues, easy to talk about the district. Um, and, but I, I think like I was such an idealist on my first campaign thinking you could sort of buck the party, you know, platforms and be your own person. And, you know, a lot of that was such a wake up call. Um, I've worked on a number of campaigns since in, you know, managing a Boston City Council race, um, working as a consultant and sort of volunteer in chief on some county commissioner races, some state rep races, things like that, um, some state committee races as well, which has been interesting. So I am involved primarily on the Republican side, but um, have been known personally to support folks from both sides. So currently, um, you know, I started working in women's empowerment specifically um, within politics right, right following that first campaign. Um, so it was something I was doing in addition to this other work um, in politics is sort of motivating and educating women and how to enter the political arena, um, which is what I'm doing now for an organization that specifically serves center-right women. So um, I feel like there's been you know, I've taken a lot from each individual experience, but 
I, I really fell into each one at a time um, for different reasons and different motivations. It, it hasn't just been a, I want to run the world kind of a mentality. Yeah. Um, and, and so, I, and I feel like I was late to the game because now I'm, I'm meeting volunteers and stuff that are still in high school. I'm like, you guys are going to be rock stars. You're going to know way more and do way more than I ever will from when I started. So. Yeah, no, that was, that was like, like a little bit even sobering, more sobering for me, like at my age, when I was like doing that little career transition after being a teacher. And then I was like these kids that were in high school and college, just like, damn, good for you guys. Like, that's what I should have been doing. Uh, it's funny for you at like still your age to be like, oh, I'm a grizzled veteran at this point. I was late to the game at like 24. Uh, so a, a couple of things that you touched on that I wanted I want to follow up on. So first of all, uh, that Peter Tedeschi campaign, I don't know if actually, I think you do know this, is that Ricky and I are, are good friends with his nephew, Jason Tedeschi, Mike Tedeschi, Chris Tedeschi. So like, um, it was, that was always funny to me that like, that was the camp, like, or that even that Peter was running in the race. Like it, it was always, I don't know, it's kind of cool when you know someone that's like, or, or a, you know, that's running for like a significant office like that. Um, and, but one of the things that you said was, uh, and people probably picked up on this from the fact that we were working on similar campaigns and that Peter Tedeschi was the person you were working for was that you were working for Republican campaigns and you said that you work for like a center-right organization now and so kind of curious like how that developed what were you always like from the time you registered to vote you were like hey I'm going to be a Republican and, and you kind of stuck with that is that something that you developed as you got older it's, it's funny like how you know that you went to Northeastern as Republican or at least someone that's a little more conservative and so as you mentioned, like you, you can, you've worked across, you know, campaigns on both sides, but largely your work has been on the right. And so just kind of, if you could trace like that growth for yourself, like how did you realize that that's kind of the side of the aisle or those are the values that you wanted to you know work with and work on? Yeah. So I didn't really have the vocabulary, even when I first started at the state house of right meant conservative, left meant liberal. I didn't vote until I mean, a couple of years passed when I was eligible to vote. When I first registered, I registered as a Democrat because growing up in New York State at the time I was in high school, Sandy Hook happened, right? And like the SAFE Act passed in New York State, which was a super flawed bill and, you know, and then law, but like Republicans were waving AR-15s at the state house, and Democrats are like talking about school safety. So things like to a kid, um, that really didn't know one way or the other. I mean, I just knew that I was like, okay, with gay people. And I knew so little about what politics was and what the parties were. So I registered as a Democrat, never voted. Um, when I began working in Governor Baker's press office, had still never voted um, myself. And uh, I was, you know, doing a lot of like intern tasks, like transcribing what he said word for word. Um, from a tape recorder and then I would show up to class at Northeastern and I had this one professor that was very liberal and she made me conservative uh, because what she was saying was just not correct Uh, I thought it was like total injustice to you know at the time um, the, the governor was considering whether or not to have folks from Syria come a very tumultuous time and very sensitive issue and um, it, you know, any issue surrounding race and ethnicity can get like it really p- 
poorly communicated. Um, so what a lot of people are saying and with Seth Moulton sweeping in and being like, well, I took in an Iraqi translator and we're like, no one's saying don't take in the guy that worked for the US military, you know? No one's saying that. That's not what the other side is saying. So it's like a, you know, a fake straw man argument, right? But but she would say that Governor Baker said X, Y, Z thing. And I would know because I had to write it out word for word that that wasn't true. And so I ended up just sort of sticking up for him. Um, and he's an easy person to stick up for. Yeah. right? Like, and it just became something that were, where my classmates were really relying on anyone that could provide a counterpoint as well. Um, we were reading books like Moral Politics, which is a great book, um, but it really describes how both the left and the right frame their arguments in these big existential ways down to how they communicate. Um, and so my teacher would be like, well, you know, what's an example of using, you know, a father versus mother thing? And I would say, like, oh, well, this is what the conservatives would say. It's like a strong father. And I could just tell there was like this vitriol for even saying objectively like this is what's in the book this is this but it's it's the right perspective instead of the left perspective so that always that made me more conservative it made me more interested um in the right and so sometimes I say I would have been a democrat in Alabama probably right and so the first election I voted in was the 2016 Republican primary so I'd switched my registration to vote in that primary and have been a Republican since um, I, so are not political like they are not you know I, I'm I use a lot of my upbringing now in justifying why I am conservative but mm-hmm. it did not raise me as a Republican my mom's top two picks in 2016 were Hillary Clinton and Chris Christie like she doesn't know, you know one way love that you don't I mean not necessarily love those candidates but like love that it's like hey we'll just judge who the candidate is we don't really care who the, the book party next to them is. yeah uh, I, uh, you know, we, we talk, we had an episode on cancel culture, maybe like a year ago, we actually, I did like an event at Suffolk Law just this past week about cancel culture. And I think it's, and this is like what the opposite of Ricky, what we try to do of like, we try to have a conversation to other, understand each other better, as opposed to just like, just be like, we're right for this reason. Because like Mo, to your point, I think when people do that on either side, being like, I, this is the only answer. And you see that all over social media. It's like, it drives people the other way. Um, so I, I think that's a, it makes a lot of sense what you said like that rings true to me uh so you point to 2016 uh obviously super interesting time in politics in general republican politics in particular over the last six years has anything changed for you have you felt like you've become like more conservative more republican or like less so have you considered I actually, I don't even know what you're registered as right now, but like, have you considered like leaving the Republican party as, as many have done over those years, or is it just been kind of like, Hey, the values that I have haven't changed. I still feel like those are traditional Republican values. I'm going to stay like registered as Republican. Yeah. I I've decided to stay registered as Republican. I've considered it and I've had a lot of friends leave the party. Um, it's just not my style. Like I, I am a doer. I want to be inside of it. And I have tried to advocate for as many center right people not to leave the party as possible because you're just leaving it to the folks with like the strongest opinions that are putting themselves in the room. Um, so I think the better way to go about changing the platform or the party um, and who we're selecting as our candidates is, is to stay in it and not walk away from it. Um mm-hmm. 
But yeah, I mean, it's been a challenging time. I did not support President Trump politically, but once he was president, I supported him as a president. Um, the way I would like to expect of everyone to do like for the president, I think I have grown more, I've grown more conservative, if you can call it that, in the last two years since COVID because of COVID policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently my stances are the conservative stances, but really what's what's developed over the last six years is, and I hate to use the word resentment, but it's like more annoyance with the left and the left's tactics. Um, I still feel like there's only one political party where you can be either pro-life or pro-choice, and that's the Republican Party. Um, and, you know, they're just... Like fundamentally, I think my values are more aligned and I'm more willing to put in the work and and fix the flaws um, within the Republicans. So I am um, the vice president of the Boston chapter, the the greater Boston chapter of the Log Cabin Republicans, which is the LGBTQ um, organization for Republicans. So I'm involved in that way, but I'm also just, I'm not... I've gotten more savvy working on campaigns of knowing how to work with the party and to work within the party platform. Um, but I wouldn't say that that platform hundred percent represents where my values are. Yeah, for sure. So like, speaking of like just putting in the work, so let's talk about the work you, you do right now. So you kind of, you, you're like, as I mentioned, like on the, on the top, you work for now this organization called the women's public leadership network. And so um, I'll give kind of my understanding of the organization, but please, please, you know, round it out. So it's, it's an organization that is designed to um, promote, encourage, inspire, teach um, center-right women to get more involved in politics. So I guess like a couple of questions I have around that is one, you know, why did you want to do that work? And then two, what about your organization stands out? Like what makes your organization different? I know like in recent years, there's been a number of organizations that have popped up, um, and on both sides, but particularly more recently on like the right side being like, yo, we need to get more women involved in politics. So again, what, why, what prompted you to get involved in this, like kind of make that career shift um, from like directly working on campaigns to working for an organization like this. And then what about the organization kind of speaks to you in terms of like the mission and the work that you do? Yeah. So, um, and I'll just abbreviate with WPLN because it's, it is a mouthful of a name. Um, but I've been with WPLN since 2020. We are a 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. So we don't exclusively serve Republicans, which is great. We have um, about a quarter of our participants are Democrats. Uh, another quarter or more are independents. Um, but it's really values driven. We also don't endorse policy positions, which I think is important. What we're doing is we are um, making the process more accessible. So we like to say educate, organize, and inspire. Um, So we provide free educational resources online. Um, So our first three courses are Is Running Right for Me, um, Campaign Laws and Requirements, and Fundraising. And then we invest in state-based organizations that are also nonprofits at the state level to do more of the state-by-state training. We don't franchise out and, and have chapters of our organization. We grow these nonprofits um, from at the state level from the ground up so that they're a little bit more responsive in their structure um, and tone and outreach and everything like that to the state. Um, we, I, I like to use the example, like uh, I was down in Louisiana uh, about a month ago and 
the women in Louisiana are amazing and it's a very conservative state that's got the lowest representation of women overall. Um, so there is a real case for we need center right women, right? Because states where that you might have a ton of Democratic women, but unless they're a hundred percent of the uh, of the legislature, right? You're st- you're not going to get to that fifty percent. So we need women on both sides. But the Louisiana women will often invoke like, "Oh, why did you decide to run?" Well, I was reading the scripture passage um, and had a conversation with my pastor, and this is why you know my my faith motivated me to run. That just is not the same tone that we use in Massachusetts. Um, it's not the same tone in Connecticut or Michigan. Michigan has term limits that nobody else has. California has ballot harvesting that Massachusetts doesn't have. So it's super important to tackle these on a state-by-state basis. So that's a little bit about the structure. Um, I'm super motivated to do the work because immediately I was one of very few women in rooms, on campaigns, um, you know, within, within party activities, things like that. And, you know, the Republican state committee is gender balanced and that it's got, you know, half and half, like one man, one woman from each district. But when you're actually talking with activists, you know, there are just so many more men. I think men just naturally see themselves as, you know, future president of the United States. They'll wake up one morning having never been to their civic association meeting, but think they can run for, you know, U.S. House or Senate. Um, and that's nothing against my candidates. That's just in general. Um, and women just aren't. We're cautious and we're, care- you know, we'll give more to charities, but we won't give to political candidates in the same amount. So um, just changing the narrative and and trying to get more women like me out there. Um, and in terms of what makes us different you know, from other nonprofits, as a nonprofit, most women's nonprofits at the national level lean left. They just do. The women that they're elevating as their speakers are left leaning um, or explicitly progressive. So when we say center right being, you know, a, a tool of any political party we're just that's our equivalent of progressive which is actually closer to the middle on the spectrum than progressive is um and then compared to other organizations dedicated to helping conservative women we are a c3 we are not a PAC. so there are some great PACs that have popped up um there are some great c4s um that will help actually invest in races we do not invest in individual race, races. We do not electioneer. Um, we provide educational resources um, and networking opportunities that I think gets most of the women over that gap in confidence to actually begin you know, to be a part of the process. Um, but we're not guaranteeing any outcomes, endorsing or endorsing any policy as well. There's a lot of conservative organizations that do policy um, we don't really want to reinvent the wheel. So, fair enough. All right. So, you kind of alluded to this, but I yeah, I feel like this that when we think of like women in politics, you more tend to think of Democrats. Um, and the data kind of like at, at the national level, and I would imagine on state levels, bears bears that out. And so we know that like 2020 was like a historic year for women in Congress. Um, I think there were like 144 women um, elected in Congress. Uh, but I, th- I think it was like one, 106 to 38, like Democrats to Republicans. So, and, and it was, it was actually like a huge, it was a 
there was a narrative out there about like Republican women, like it was a big year for Republican women. And it was, and it was something that I know that like I noted that I celebrated. I'm sure you did far more and credit to you for like actually like doing the work. But um, I think, you know, like what, what, what particular challenges do you think it is? And I think there's a, there's something on your website that says like 68% of women in the country identify as like moderate or conservative, but yet the overwhelming amount of like, elected officials who are women are on the Democratic side. So what, what particular challenges are there for women who identify as center-right in terms of like, why, why don't we have more center-right women in politics? Um, so for a couple of reasons, comparing us to the left, the left has been at this for about 40 years. Emily's List and the, the groups funded through similar channels or the same channels as Emily's List have been around for 40 years now. So they were started in the 1980s. Um, we were, you know, we were gender biased and then gender blind. And now we're starting to see gender in a constructive way as like, this is right, how the conversations we're having around race as well. Like, um, you know, being colorblind, gender blind doesn't produce any constructive outcomes for these groups. And so um, we get pushback a lot on the right still um, from potential donors, from other activists of, well, what do you want me to vote for an unqualified woman over a qualified man? Um, women for the sake of women, um, you know, why, why do we need women essentially is a question that just prevails a little bit more culturally that we are an older half of the um, ideological spectrum. So I think that has a lot to do with it as well. Um, so there are just those sort of prevailing questions. And then there there's, there's contrarian Republican women that don't want to support Republican women. You know, I think the national Federation of Republican women endorsed uh, a male opponent to chairwoman Jessica Milan Patterson in California um, for her reelection as chairwoman of the party. She, her male opponent was endorsed by a women's organization. So there's like this weird contrarian attitude um, that we see a lot. So culturally, it's just not an effort that everyone's on board with. Um, and strategically, I think, I think a lot of times being a woman does mean being more left-leaning in, in voters' brains. Now, on the Democratic side, that's great. These progressives are replacing blue dogs. Um, and by virtue of being a woman, it's like it's already progress. And so it like just fits the narrative. But we don't necessarily want progress in the same way um, on the right. And so around issues of choice, around issues of, of Me Too and Title IX, um, around issues of gender and gender identity, these questions, women tend to be more sympathetic towards these marginalized groups. That doesn't mean that every woman is, um, but I think that there's a, a heavy perception that they're more left-leaning. So where we do get women is in more purple districts and where I'd like to see more women, and they're not currently in the pipeline, they're not in these old boys networks yet, are in these dark red districts, um, the safe Republican districts because then we won't have this number fluctuate so much as well. Right. Um, in 2018 and in 2020, a lot of the women that were elected were, you know, like a lot of the new flip seats were women, but they were also replacing women. Um, and we need more, like we, we need to have women 
representing the equivalent of Ayanna Presley's district in Boston. That's right. never going to flip. So once you're in, you're kind of safe. Um, but yeah, I mean, 2020 was a great year for diversity and gender diversity within the Republican Party. Um, first two Korean American um, women, Iranian American women. Um, we had more Hispanic and Latino women. So, I mean, it's just great on all fronts um, and they're the total package. But as a nation, I don't think the average woman feels more motivated than they did. I know that they don't feel more motivated than they did 20 years ago to be a part of the political process. Maybe it's self-preservation, like at the individual level, it's super volatile and women are harassed online significantly more. There was a report that came out. Kamala Harris has been an example of that, um, of how much more scrutiny uh, some folks get just for being women. Um, But but there's also the fact that women are tend to be more motivated by specific policies and specific outcomes that they're looking to achieve through public service and not for the fact that they feel qualified or entitled to any position. Yeah. Uh, so a couple things. Uh, one, like you mentioned that, that we need to kind of increase like the, the depth of the bench for, for these women, like just the more people you kind of have in the process, the more likely you have candidates that are going to be successful and the candidates that can, can stay there. Um, but I wonder also, like, even if you think of like women politicians, like the most famous women politicians in the country, like you would go back to like Geraldine Ferrero and then you maybe go to, you know, Hillary Clinton or, you know, obviously now Kamala Harris or Nancy Pelosi or Elizabeth Warren or Amy Klobuchar, right? Like there's, they're all Democrats, right? And it's like, where what significance do you think it would have? And are we even close to getting something like that where we kind of have women at like the, the top levels of the Republican party. So like we had, obviously we had Sarah Palin who was you know, John McCain's running mate um, back in 2008, but like I, I could, we could come up with just a bunch of women. Like if you look at the, you know, the finalists for like in the democratic primary in 2020, you would say maybe three of the top five candidates were women um, and the Republican party is like nowhere close to that. So I, I wonder how much, like when we talk about like representation matters, uh, like, what do you, what do you think about that? Is it, is it more about kind of like developing those lower like rungs that we, if we have more women in the house of representatives, we have more women in the Senate, we are more likely to get like women presidential candidates or it's kind of like, like the chicken or the egg question, I guess I'm kind of asking here. Yeah. Um, about three quarters of the Republican women serving in Congress held a lower office before serving in Congress. So um, examples of that are Beth Van Dyne in Texas uh, was city council mayor, um, actually had an appointment in the Trump administration and now is a congresswoman. Um, Stephanie Bice was a state representative senator. She was the cold beer queen of Oklahoma and is now in Congress. Um, I think that the pipeline is it opens up the process, right? Not everyone has, um, and, and it will diversify the the candidate pool in so many different ways, because not everyone can just jump in and run for Congress. It is an extreme strain on schedules, um, on finances, on fundraising. Um, There are just, there's so much that you have to do to run at that level, but there's very little you have to do to get appointed to a city board or commission or serve on a city council. Um, I was doing some research back in 2017, 2018 on Dallas County. Um, and I hope the numbers have improved. I haven't pulled them lately, but of the 31 
towns, more than half had zero or one woman on their city or town council. Like these are seats that affect people's daily life. How can you have no women whatsoever in your government? So, and because of that, like you said, like, um, you know, appointments are another avenue where women are completely underrepresented. Having a woman in office means that she has a network that includes both men and women to consider for those appointments. Um, whereas men, you know, have been in power for this long, this many hundred, hundreds of years in America, and they are not picking women in the same, like, numbers as they are picking other men. And that just is a reality that we need to face head on. Um, women can't do a worse job than the men have already done, right? So God forbid they pick a whole woman agricultural commission. Oh, well, wouldn't that be terrible to have just one gender serving on a, you know, a state board or commission? This is exactly what we have right now across the country, but it's all men and nobody's, yeah. nobody's making us think about it. So, um, you know, I like to remind people we really won't pose an existential threat to, to the male existence for a very long time, um, especially at this pace. So I think, you know, we like to talk about pipeline. Um, hopefully these PACs and other explicitly political organizations see that as a bench, you know, to pull somebody with a constituency that would be a strong candidate for those higher offices. Um, but for us, it's the fact that this ratio is mirrored at the local and state level. We've got to fix it at all levels. Um, you know, it's not just selfishly about having more Congress people the next time around. So um, super important. And, it, but at the same time, a woman, you know, if you ask me who my political idols are, they're not all women. Um, having women at the highest levels might in inspire the little girl, but I don't know what that does necessarily for the mid-career women that we need running right now. We need them running because they personally are asked to run, feel qualified, you know, to hold a mirror up to them. Um, not just because there are other political role models, because I know Kamala Harris doesn't speak for me as a woman. So having her in office doesn't necessarily make me feel like I'm represented in the Oval Office, in the White House, in, you know, the vice president's office. So I think, you know, they're more productive and individualized, like and, and I'm an individualist as a conservative of saying, you would be great in public office. Women need that more than men do. So organizations like mine exist to sort of do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, so much of what you're saying, like, reminds me of the, the conversation Ricky and I had a couple weeks ago about like affirmative action and particularly like we, we talked about the NFL in particular, right? And how when you don't have black general managers or black owners, like you just don't have like those kind of voices in the kind of making decisions and having like you said the networks to like hire those people. And so then that's this is why we don't have any like very few black NFL head coaches. I think what you're saying about women in politics just rings true in, in that same way. Um, so you said it like that it's, you know, it's not an existential crisis and certainly at the pace that we're working at now in terms of like women increasing their uh, representation in all levels of government. Um, how do you feel about the, the pace of change? Do you feel like, hey, like we're making progress after 2020, we're going to keep making progress in 2022, 2024? Or is it, you know, oftentimes when we talk about like the pace of change for like black people in the country, you know, there's a sense that 
amongst a lot of black people, not to speak for them, but to kind of be like, well, there's not enough urgency around this. Like this is a serious, but we need to like be, we can't be satisfied with the pace of change. So how do you feel in terms of like, from like the, the female perspective about the pace of change in terms of the amount of female representation in government? Yeah, if we keep at this current pace, it'll take another 100 years to get balanced representation. I like to use the term balanced representation um, because parity is just 50-50 and that's not, that doesn't speak to, I want women from across the ideological spectrum to be represented and representing those viewpoints. Um, so, I mean, I think it needs to be a lot higher. I think, you know, there is some burnout. Everything comes in waves and trends. And I've seen as a nonprofit, you know, we could use a lot more sustained support than we have for this movement because people's attention spans are short. Um, we're in a midterm election year, so there's there should be more, but there's more eyes on every type of diversity initiative. Um and it's so hard to just all be lumped together. Like I'm sure every racial and ethnic group hates being lumped together. Women and gay people are also in that bucket fighting for what the, you know, the kind hearts that are out there, which is, is just not every corporation, foundation, et cetera, um, to support this work. So the number one thing we need is just more support for these efforts on both sides at all levels. Um, and that that needs to accelerate if we're going to be successful. Um, what we what we in the movement have done with so little is great. And I do think it's making a huge difference. But we have so much, much more ground to cover. Um, so I would say I'm not content with the pace right now. But at the same time, I don't want women for the sake of women. Like, I, I don't think it's just a matter of of throwing unqualified people into office, right? It's really about thinking and being deliberate about the process. If you have an expertise and you don't have to have studied political science, I think that's the the corner we still need to round as well as people from other professions and women from other professions and experiences, finding a role in government that suits them. Um, and it shouldn't just be the folks that want to climb the political ladder that are serving in government. I think we'd be better off if people came motivated to make change based on their expertise. So, you know, if you are a cattleman, a cattlewoman, um, you should be serving on an agricultural board or, um, you know, involved with your farm bureau or cattlemen's association. Um, and I just think that, that we're still behind even in those industry specific areas. So, I don't want to just like snap my fingers and have 50% of the Congress. I don't want the structural kind of multi-member districts um, or quotas and things like that. Um, because I think that then people will start to see women as just there because they have to be and not there because they've earned it and are uniquely qualified to be there. Yeah. That, I mean, that, again, like you, I mean, it's what you're saying. It brings exactly to what we talked about with affirmative action. It's, it's the same type of stuff, right? It's, it's not to be there just to, to check a box. It's there because like you are qualified to be there. You're the best candidate to do that job. Um, so you mentioned the midterms. Obviously, we're now, what, like nine, eight, eight nine months away from them. Um, what, how have you seen? Like, are there any trends that you're seeing? I know you guys did like a, you know, like a conference, like you mentioned earlier this month. Uh, what, are, what are you seeing, if, if any trends in terms of, 
uh, the amount of women who are running and the potential success of women. Like, do we feel like 2022 is just going to keep building on 2020 in terms of like uh, female representation, certainly at like the, the national level? I hope so. Um, there are a lot of new candidates, which, you know, people can get really excited about, but there are also, I mean, to be the, the pessimist, um, there are a lot of women under threat of or currently facing primary challenges for not being conservative enough or more aligned with the former president. Um, and that can pose a serious issues. If you look at the victims of who he has identified as um, candidates and, and congresspeople to replace from the further right, um, they are mostly women that he's attacking, right? Like, why bash Susan Collins? Like, it doesn't make sense to me, but, it, you know, his his base can be mobilized and can be weaponized against these more pragmatic, more center-right um, and I, I wouldn't even really describe her as center right. She's a conservative um, senator. So that's what I worry about looking at this midterm. Um, but that being said, these purple districts where it's going to be competitive, I do think um, there has been a shift in mindset to see women as a strategic addition and advantage in certain races. Um, and we will really see like after the primary, who, how many women make it out even in races where there's one or two, like if you looked at Texas's, I think it was their sixth, fifth or sixth district, there was a special, there were two women and five men. I mean, those are just tough numbers. Statistically women are winning at the same rates as they're running, but men are running more. Mm -hmm. Um, There are always more men in a primary than women. So it can be tough. Um, I think, you know, I think the more women that win in their primaries, the better, will know that they'll win in the general because it is a midterm. There's a lot to, to swing voters um, and sort of correct um, the pendulum on. So I just hope that they make it out of their primaries. Organizations like RSLC um, and ViewPAC will play in primaries. RSLC is not specifically focused on women. ViewPAC is. Um, so they are getting involved early in races to have strategically the best candidate um, for their causes. And I think a lot of those are going to shake out to be women. Well, that's exciting. I, I was, we have long lamented the primary process here on, on this podcast and how detrimental it is to getting what we would call more normal or pragmatic candidates, um, candidates that are more willing to compromise and less like ideologues. And so just on, on that note, like, do you think there's anything about the primary process that makes it more difficult for women to be successful in politics? Uh, is it, is it just kind of like the numbers game that you were alluding to earlier? Or would you identify any other parts of the process that make it difficult on, particularly difficult on women? So um, it's super expensive, right? It, it doubles the cost of the election. So that disadvantages women more than it disadvantages men. Men have an easier time raising money, are bigger political givers, are less likely to be under the expectations of like the home balance and things like that. So I mean, just the more expensive our elections are getting, we risk leaving women out of it and behind. And like I said, maybe it'll be all rich women then in office, which is not necessarily what we mean. And that's that's not necessarily a more representative democracy. So it's always a shame when there's really competitive primaries at the same time. I know that conversations are happening because I have heard from people that are on both sides of this conversation 
of don't run. The party knows who they want. And sometimes it really sucks because that's a good old boy. And that is perpetuating the same issue we've had for so long where they're telling a woman not to run. Um, but sometimes the woman is, is on the right side of, of that conversation. And hopefully that's going to happen more and more. And hopefully they're having talks from party leadership on both sides earlier and earlier into this process to sort of stave off those. I always think like, you know, don't not run because somebody doesn't tell you to run. We try and be very pragmatic and have honest conversations and help women have honest conversations with themselves of don't run. If you know, you're going to lose, there's gotta be a path to victory. There's gotta be a coalition for you. Um, and, and so don't be afraid of losing, but don't run. If you know that there's not that path. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, that's really interesting. And so like, just to consider that a, a little bit more, you said that I think a quarter of the women that you work with are independents. And so like, how do we, how do you, how do we work with people like that? And I think one thing that Ricky and I have talked about is like, how much room are, is there in the system for like individuals to run? And what I mean, like, obviously like everyone running is an individual, but like kind of not like with the big support of the you know political action committees or the state and local, like national party, like how, not that there's a, a simple solution to this, but I'd be curious like how you counsel um, particularly women that are like view themselves as independents. I think that the odds might seem like overwhelming or insurmountable. And to that point, then you just don't run at all. And we don't get those voices in the, in the conversation, which hurts our conversation. It, it hurts like the amount of women that we get elected. It, it just kind of, yeah, I guess that I'm curious, like your thoughts on that. My, my advice is always to start small. There's so many nonpartisan offices to seek. And then if you are effective in office and then you can run on being effective in office, having ideas, having goals, vision, expertise, and keep it about issues and keep it about the district and not nationalize everything. I mean, that would be great. That's the dream. And whether you're registered with one party, the other, a third party, a fourth, which I hope are coming at some point in our history. Um, and I know they're there, but you know, in a real way. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but like, I would love that everyone's principled and running, running for, to accomplish something or to serve the district. And if we can keep conversations on that, the primary process just keeps the conversation in this ideological space, which is a shame. Um, there is a way of combating that. And that's just speaking directly to voters issues and building new coalitions. Um, I do think that uh, a diversity in gender, race, experience, background um, can bring new voters into the fold, Yeah, which I, I think is always super important. So own your identity and say, you know, how, how can I use this to tap unta- previously untapped groups or coalitions to my benefit but ultimately, you know, we all know from, from working in and around politics that it usually is the same folks that show up. Um, and there's a very small percentage of them that show up to their party primary and yeah. have very specific goals that yeah. you need to speak to if you're in yeah. a competitive. All right. So two things on that. One, I think you've kind of mentioned this a couple of times, but it's been long foretold like, Oh, the change in demographics is going to lead to like the demise of the Republican party. But I think what you're saying is really the opposite of that, where like, you pointed to like, you know, Korean Americans, for instance, or Iranian Americans or Hispanic Americans who like these women 
particularly women in 2020, but also just, you know, um, can't like elected officials in general, how we might be able to like bring these um, these groups that have been like too often kept out of the political process and you bring candidates, whether like male or female in, like that brings those voters in. But I, I think that's the question that and I know Ricky has where it's like, how much, you know, when, when you are forced to deal, as you mentioned, with primary voters, how much can you as an individual kind of shape the party's platform or how much do you just have to kind of run to the party's platform? You know, it's like, it, are you just kind of a slave to the system, to the platform that like, it just, that just dictates what you need to run on versus like how much leeway do the individuals have to really kind of, as, as you're saying, like run on issues that are important to them or people in their districts. Ultimately, I mean, I think that the, voter preferences should dictate what you run on if you want to be effective. And this is pure strategy. This is me throwing everything else out the window, right? Like don't compromise your values. But if you really don't know which side to pick, pick with the voters, don't pick with the party platform sometimes. And, and I'm very glad that we've elected Winsome Sears as Lieutenant Governor of Virginia. And she's the first black woman that's been elected statewide and she's a veteran and she's great, but I was getting um, like the same AR-15 holding mailer at my home in Alexandria, Virginia, as probably everyone in rural Stafford County was getting, um, getting the same mailer, um, despite the fact that I live in an urban area that leans left on those issues. Um, so I know it's the party platform and it's totally fine that that's her position on those issues, but you shouldn't be at the podium in Alexandria talking about that. Right. Um, my big thing is to have an answer to everything. You know, in a primary, you're going to be asked what, how you measure up against the platform. If you deviate from it, you have to have crafted an answer to that question before the voter asks it. And your ability to explain your reasoning is more important than how often you agree or disagree, um, in my opinion. So it's just being prepared. And then in a general, you have to know, well, what does this district want, look like? How many independent voters am I going to be speaking to? And and what do they care about? What do they like best from the other side? What are the top two issues? Why am I not on their side of this issue? They might be able to tolerate disagreeing with you if you have a good reason for it. Um, And I just think sometimes our political discourse is we disagree because you're wrong and not we disagree. This is how you see the world. This is how I see the world. This is why I'm choosing this, but this is how much it'll actually affect your life that we disagree on this issue. Um, I'm pro-life, but it's not one of my podium stances. If I were to run for anything, am I getting into government to be a pro-life activist? No, I'd probably be getting in because of what my city or town needs um, to, to be doing differently. Like, does my stance on that issue affect you on a daily basis? Probably not. So I think know your reasons, but then know the degree to which that is relevant to the office you're running for. And if you really want to change gun, gun rights in your state, you know, are, should you be running for city council with that as your platform if it's not relevant to what you would be doing in office? Um, and I think that these are the questions that every candidate, but women want to know the answers to. 
um, before jumping in. So it's kind of a matchmaking process. Know the office and the role, but know your district um, and then think about where you are. Be prepared for the questions in the primary. Be prepared for the questions in the general. Good advice. Just in general, <laughs> uh, for any any listeners out there that are potentially considering a future run for office. Uh, so I just just a couple more questions for you, Mo. Uh, the first one is, so some of my favorite senators, regardless of party, are Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. Um, I've had a tremendous amount of respect for Representative Liz Cheney, what she's done over the past year or so. Um, are there other leaders that you look to, whether personally or as an organization, or just like, hey, these are kind of women that we want to hold up and aspire to kind of be more like, but also like have candidates that can kind of grow in the mold of those women? Um, you know, I'll speak just personally, um, because as a C3, we don't deal directly with candidates as much um, or, or current office holders, but I love Nikki Haley. Um, I know she's gotten a lot of heat since her service in the Trump administration, but I personally think that she navigated that very well um, and that she was service-minded and driven um, and not so politically driven. And that's critical in her role on the international stage. Um, But while she was governor, she was the first governor, period, not Republican governor, first governor to institute statewide police body cams. Um, that is something where, you know, that is such a sticky issue. It's easy to be a Democrat and still be against that because then you're up against a union, you know, and there's, there's so many fault lines, um, that are drawn on that particular issue. And she did not care, didn't consider those. She considered, uh, the potential victims of police brutality when she made that decision. So, um, I, I really personally like her. Um, you know, really like Senator Collins. I can respect a lot of the new members, um, even those that are voting in ways that, you know, side with the former president more than some voters would like, more than some centrists and Democrats would like. I don't think they should just like the safe Republicans. Like somebody becomes safe for Democrats, like when they disavow what the Republican Party stands for, right? But that's not it. Um, Nancy Mace is a great example of somebody. She's from North Carolina. She's the first woman to graduate Citadel, um, which is a military college. She is super impressive, super qualified, speaks her mind very freely and openly, like a real person in office, which I appreciate about her personally. Um, On January 6th, was very quick to say, this is ridiculous, right? This is inappropriate. It's unconscionable. But then as things come around um, in terms of impeachment and stuff like that, she sides with the majority of Republicans. And people want to get really upset about that. Had she been on that short list of folks, you know, Republicans that side with the Democrats, she would have probably been primaried out of her seat this time around. Um, so I'm begging people to consider the political decisions that some of these leaders make that that don't mean that they're not principled and don't have a brain and are not seeing things objectively. Um, so there's just so many of the new Congresswomen, I would say most of them that were elected in 2020 are badass and everyone should go look them up. Uh, Marionette Miller Meeks won by six votes. 
um, in her general election. So she now has her six pack is her pack. Um, and was that the one in Iowa? Yeah. 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 That was, that was like down to the wire, obviously. Also, Nancy Pelosi almost didn't like certify that election. Mm, Congress was going to intervene into, you know, county by county and state voting vote counts, which is just totally inappropriate, but everyone's a hypocrite at some point in, in 2022. <laughs> um, but yeah, so she's pretty cool. She was a doctor. She was an eye doctor, actually. And she said, like, who doesn't love their eye doctor? Like, eye doctors should be running for Congress in greater numbers, because who doesn't like their eye doctor, you know? <laughs> well, that's your point about people from different, whether walks of life or different professions, just getting involved and seeing themselves as a viable candidate. That, that's really cool. All right. Um, last question. Obviously, in the news, President Biden um, nominated um, Kataji Brown-Jackson to be the, the new justice of the Supreme Court. Obviously, we'll have to see how her nomination, her confirmation process plays out. But if it goes according to President Biden's plan, and there's no reason to think that it won't, um, we will have four women on the court and the first black woman on the court, which obviously, you know, both her historic things. And so while, you know, judge Jackson doesn't necessarily have to represent you or me, or do you have any thoughts on the potential elevation of the first black justice and the fourth potential woman justice to the Supreme court? Generally I'm very happy and we know it's going to be a liberal justice. So um, there's nothing wrong with making a commitment to say, I'm going to look at black women for this role uh, because it's time because there are so many qualified black women. Like I, I hate that Mitt Romney got bashed for the binders full of women comment. Cause that's exactly what we need to have. There are so many out there and they're not in these natural circles and gaming their way up the system, but they exist. This is not an unqualified person um, being put forward. It will be the sixth ever in our history um, woman to serve on the Supreme Court, which is way too few. I love that you know we're going to be four of nine. I don't think the court should be expanded, so I'm you know happy with that. Um, and I just think it's great. I think it's it's awesome. And we should be personally celebrating her um, and her accomplishment and congratulating her. It's something that the left did not do for Amy Coney Barrett, which really bothered me. I saw no, even the nonpartisan organizations that are more left leaning, no celebration of the fact this is the fifth woman ever on the Supreme Court. But because you disagree with her, it is not an accomplishment. And I'm just not going to... Um, sort of take that tone with this confirmation. I expect it'll happen. There's no controversy around the timing. It's going to be a liberal justice. Why not have it be this historic? Well, that seems like a very reasonable take, Mo. Uh, I think that's a, that's a good way to conclude. We appreciate uh, you at least postponing your potential day of hypocrisy. We're not, I appreciate the consistency across across the ideological spectrum with, with these confirmation processes. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. I, that, I think fascinating. Uh, like a lot of what you said was interesting, um, thought-provoking. And I, I think Ricky and I will probably do a little bit of that once you, once you lock off and just digging through that. But um, we so appreciate having you on and your time and all, all the work that you're doing. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. I um, I don't know if I'm delayed right now. I've been... All right. No, I was I just saying this a great conversation to to be able to sit in on, but I was feeding Brendan some some of my own questions, which were uh yeah, this this was great.
that we'll uh, we'll let you go. Right. The rest Thanks, Mom. We appreciate you. Yeah, I totally appreciate being on, guys, and I like the the whole concept of what you guys are doing. So it's great. Cool. We appreciate it. All right. All right. Good to see. You. Bye. So super grateful that Mo came on and gave us so much of her time. I think that, you know, what I said at the end was, was true. I think a lot of what she said was really thought provoking and um, the conversation probably went a little bit longer than even um, I had anticipated just because like I wanted to follow up on, on so much of what she said, but um, you know, we wanted to get her on to, you know, continue to get some like different perspectives on things. And I think it's, it's cool to get someone who's like very much in the the campaign world and is doing, as she said, like the work that she wants to see happen. Um, I think most people probably realize that Ricky was having some internet issues, which is why you, you didn't hear much from him uh, during that segment, but uh, we're going to do the best we can. He and I to kind of, to recap that conversation, any final thoughts, or I guess Ricky, any initial thoughts on, on um, anything that Mo said throughout that conversation? So many thoughts. I think, I think it was, um, yeah, her perspective is, is, is really so unique being a woman in politics on the right. I I mean, obviously she got in to, to many of those things, but I guess some of the things that we didn't get into is, you know, why do women tend to be more, they don't tend to be more progressive, but why do women who run for office tend to be more progressive and what about sort of that platform makes it easier maybe uh to run so that was that was something that i i was thinking about as as she was describing but you know in your your lived experience working on campaigns and clearly she's been deeper into it and been at it for for a very long time now that um the other thing that really struck me was just you know our what we learned in in civics class for how you know, you should run on your principles and the best in, you know, what you think is best. And um, that there is, there is room for some of that, but that you really, that there's a lot to the, like the game of politics that you need to understand. And I think this organization that is like, Hey, you know, for women who haven't, you know, you don't net, I mean, personally, I've never been really introduced into this, but, you know, as a man, you're more likely to have somebody, you know, take you under their wing a little bit and get um, and get some experience in these types of things and just kind of understand the inner workings of this stuff. And I think one of the cool things about this organization is that it's sort of doing that out in the open, but, um, but for, but for women and um, yeah. And then, and then that tie into kind of affirmative action and not necessarily, you know, what, what is the, the policy that we need, um, to, to get more women elected to office and to see that representation a little bit more balanced as she was saying. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I think I thought one of the things that I, that struck me is that she said, um, you know, not necessarily satisfied with the pace of change. If we could keep going the way that we're going, it'll be another hundred years or so. Um, but also, you know, not putting forth like, we need to have a policy that just says you need to do this. Cause I don't want women for the sake of women. But I, I think that that is like quintessentially the, the struggle within conservatives. It's like, I, I kind of see that things don't work. I don't necessarily want to blow up the way that it is working or, you know, to whatever extent that it's working, 
But I also recognize that like, yeah, we may not be moving fast enough. And this is like, and then, you know, we've talked about this before on the, on the other side, it's like, this doesn't work. We need to blow it up. And, and that is when we're having our constructive conversations between the right and the left, that is what we're talking about. It's like, all right, we're both on the same page. Not everything is working out. You know, what is the way that we do this without taking for granted everything that we've done, but also understanding that we need to like accelerate things to be a better future. I, I don't know. I thought, yeah, there was a, there's a ton in there to unpack. I'm rambling a little bit because I've been on mute for two hours, which is not, you know, as you know, not good, not good for me. A lot of thoughts. How, how uh, what, uh, what, what were some of the things that, that you're coming away with now that we've had a moment to digest? Yeah, it's good. It's good to hear your voice, even if it's, it's coming in in bits and pieces. I, so I, I mean, I think I've been pretty open about that struggle as, you know, someone that's more conservative of like, I recognize that there are issues, uh, but I also just don't believe in like mandates and kind of like Mo said. And I, so I think what's really cool about the work that she's doing is that like, she's actually like doing, you know, I mean, she's actually doing the work of like, all right, well, if I don't believe in like, you know, quotas, which, you know, she, I clearly don't, not to say that you or other people do as well, but like, um, all right, well, how do we affect change and try to do it in just an organic way? And she's actually on the ground doing the work. And so it's really cool to see organizations. Of course, there are so many organizations across, which are like racial or ethnic or gender or um, sexual orientation. Like there are a lot of organizations that are kind of out there doing that work. And that's really as conservative, like the stuff that I believe in, like how are we going to kind of fix the disparities in representation? Like that, this is how, in my opinion, you do that. Um, I think one to kind of build off your point about the difference between, you know, civics class and then like the actual life of the day-to-day grind of the campaign, you wonder, and maybe this is stereotypical, but that, you know, women might not be as comfortable with that difference, right? And I think Mo kind of alluded to this, whereas like a lot of women who do get involved in politics, get in there to affect like a very specific change. Like they, they see something in their communities that they don't feel like is working and they want to fix it. And I think a lot of men get involved for those same reasons, but as she said, and I think it's very much true. A lot of men also just kind of get involved because they feel like they can, you know, and like, I, you know, it's, it's a position that, you know, maybe you're not entitled to, but you certainly feel qualified for. All right. And, and women maybe are going in for slightly different reasons. And I wonder how much of that, the, the difference between like, Hey, the reason I got in is to like affect this change in my community. But now that I'm in it, I have to like compromise some of my values to, you know, to align with what the party says and to get elected. And I wonder how, how much that turns women off to a greater extent than men who might be more malleable in their principles and in, in terms of like getting elected. And so one of the things that I thought was most interesting about her, even just the way Mo like talked about getting elected was it was so practical. And I think like organization like hers, the, the women's um, public leadership network is like, that's where I think they can be most interest and most valuable. And I, I said this to her, I thought like a lot of what she said applied across the board, like to any type of candidate, um, you know, male, male, female, they're across like races, ages, right? Um, but I think that like those practical, pragmatic, you know, that education for women who might not, who might be turned off by like how politics actually is, but her, her being able to like, kind of educate those women, be like, all right, 
down these other issues that like you maybe believe one thing but it's it's not like your top three issue maybe we're not really emphasizing that issue you might have to like tone down like your language your belief around this issue and i think that that's the practical stuff like i said for any candidate but perhaps perhaps particularly for women where um an organization like um the one Milwaukee works for and others out there like are are particularly valuable in in getting more women involved in the process and giving them the foundation to be successful in the process yeah yeah definitely it's almost like a like a vocational school like a little bit of on-the-job training before um yeah before before you actually get in into it i think i think that that issue as as well in terms of like whether or not men are are more malleable i almost i almost just feel like there's always this and yeah, I mean, I, I think this this issue is hard to talk about because everybody is different. But in speaking in very general terms, there is this feeling that like I'll say whatever I have to say to get elected because then when I, once I'm elected, I can do the things that I believe in. And um, yeah, that is yeah, quintessentially like is that a is that a problem in? our political system but as we've talked about with the primaries like who are you talking to like your primary voters are a very small subsection of just people in general and you have to and you have to do certain things to to toe the lines and and I'm it's funny I'm getting like a little bit more very very slowly involved in like some south boston like neighborhood things about uh citing new developments and like you know, variance and zoning in housing and the people that show up to these meetings are not shy and they have very strong opinions of like what they want to see um, and where they want to see it. And like, in my mind, that's, you know, that's the primary voter. It's not going to be the person who's, you know, sitting at home and, and thinking about some of these things quietly, but mostly just like thinking about how do I put food on the table? How do I make sure my kid is like sleeping or going to school or, you know, whatever they need to be doing. That is, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's always like important to remember, right? Like the democracy is only as strong as like people's participation in it and how often uh, or how, how much they're, they're looking at, but at the same time, you have to be realistic about who is participating as a as a candidate. And and I thought that was also interesting, like having a, a path, like who who is like my coalition that can elect me? Because I can't just go out there and say whatever I want necessarily. I don't necessarily I don't also necessarily have to compromise my own belief and, and my principles but I have to figure out a way to appeal to a broad enough spectrum of people that I, that I have a, a reasonable shot of winning because it's, it, it sounds like, and it clearly is just a, a lot of work and time. Yeah. I, I thought one other interesting thing that she brought up was that, you know, she, like her organization often get the question of like, why women? And I, I, I probably I wish I had pushed this more into that. Uh, like, what, what is their answer? Because I think it's one of those questions that maybe seems like super obvious to maybe someone like me or you, but people are asking it like legitimately. Uh, and so like, how do you respond to a question that you think is 
basically you need to have reasons for. And I mentioned this to her and you and I have talked about this, like, like legitimately the, the senators that I tend to think are like most effective are like Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. And like, is that just a coincidence that like my favorite elected officials are, you know, these, these two, like, I would say like center right Republican, like senators, like that they're both women. I don't think it's a coincidence. Right. I, I, I even like some of, I, I again, I, I risk, I fear um, like stereo being stereotypical of like all genders that, that, you know, at this point, but I, I do feel like there are things maybe inherently that women are like better at than men. And maybe one of those is like being able to compromise and like see other people's sides of things uh, like a little bit better. And when we talk about uh, a political system that has gotten so divisive and people that are like locked in their own corners, and of course women can be just as bad at that as men. Like we look at like, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, or you, know, you might Ilan Omar. Like you could you could point to candidates who are women on kind of really the far extremes of both sides of the parties. But I also, if, if we're being like super general, do I think having more women involved in politics would maybe make the politics a little, the discourse at least, like a little, you know, better? Yeah, I probably do. And like in an all, like given everything that's happening in the United States and in the world over the past couple of years, um, that seems like something that we could really use. I, th- I think no, no matter what, and, and I don't, I don't, I'm not disagreeing with anything that you said. I, I maybe just to build on it a little bit. And we've just talked about representation just being Im- important for a million different reasons, but perhaps specifically, yeah, because people are, I mean, all, all individuals are obviously different, but specific there there are definitely characteristic differences between the genders and 50% of the population plus is women. So we're we're just missing out on a lot of clearly very talented people by you know by kind of the ratio that we have representing us. Um so there's yeah, there's there's no doubt there. I, I did think that that point that she brought up though that women are subject to like a lot more kind of like personal attacks as they are running for office um, is, yeah, it's, it's just something that like people have to recognize when we think about the things that are <clears throat> impeding people from running, like a, that is certainly in there. You know, you have to be ready to be subjected to a lot of like horrible things. Um, and that's, yeah definitely a a shame and something that like another avenue or another area that we need to work on as a, as a society. Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, I just like, as she was speaking, I think we spent a lot of time on this podcast over the last year and a half talking about like racial issues and those are super important. I don't like regret any of those conversations. I think if I regret something, it's that we didn't maybe apply some of these the same lenses that we use to talk about race to gender or to sexual orientation. I think we should do a better job of that going forward because it, it's like all the things that were, she was saying, and I, I mentioned this a couple of times, like, Oh, we had that conversation, but we had it like very specifically in talking really about like 
black Americans that like we're not having enough like black Americans in the room making decisions where she points to like when I was you know when I was in you know campaign rooms I was the only woman right and I, I'm, I'm sure that's true for many other things like when when or people with like disabilities or people who are immigrants right like just I'm just saying like people with like kind of different perspectives and while maybe that was like the undertone like maybe it was just kind of like implicit in everything that we were saying um you know I do think it was worthwhile for her to explicitly bring that up of you know, there are just not enough women, like when you talk about like activists, you talk about the campaign process, like who's actually working on campaigns, who are the campaign managers, like if it's overwhelmingly men, like you are probably going to get, it's like, it's the same type of cycle we talk about, like with NFL coaches or, or whomever, right? Like it's just that self-perpetuating cycle. And um, so I, I really appreciated her bringing that up. Last thing I'll say, uh, I think it's going to be like, I know she's like far more practical, I think, than I am in some ways where she's like, the bench is most important, these lower level races, these like agricultural committees and the school, the school committees and the city councils are like really where we need to start. But I think it'll be really interesting that in like the 2024 presidential election, like, of course, we could get like Trump Biden part two, God help us all. Um, but we could get like Harris and Haley, you know what I mean? And I think like, to your most point of like, not a woman for the sake of a woman, but like, I, I think it's, not out of the realm of possibility that both sides, both major political parties could say that our best candidate, our best hope for winning the White House is a woman. I think that would be really, that'd be really interesting and obviously historic moment for the United States. And I guess I will say that um, the Libertarian Party, who's maybe like the number three national party, their candidate last last cycle was Joe Jorgensen, who was a woman. So um, I think, uh, sorry, <laughs> she brought up so many interesting things. But like one of the other things she said is she was like, I hope there are more than just two political parties out there. And I, I think you and I both feel really similarly about that. But like when you see other political parties who already have elevated women to like the very top levels of their um, parties, you kind of, it, it reflects poorly on the two major parties as so many things do. And you're like, well, this is another reason why like, more political parties, more voices in the conversation is probably a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to build off like the more nuance in the, in the platforms and in the party platforms by getting just more, more parties, which I think is clearly there are so many people who just feel like they don't fit in one or the other, but they have to pick. Um, yeah. I mean, we could, we, we could talk a lot, a lot about this for a while, but I think that may be a good place to leave it. Um, it was really, uh, really good talking to Mo. Yeah. And we'll be back soon to talk about some of the many other current events that are, that are going on, but this was, um, I think a nice, I don't know, break in some ways, like reprieve from like all like the, the heaviness of everything that that's going on and just to have like a, a good conversation about kind of like a bird's eye view of, of a larger issue in the United States and in our politics. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads Running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away Some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the 
hope I used to find in a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because even though it did not share The pains we share That American idea Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a rain So we're online We seem to have forgotten The values sometimes Being wrong Some mornings you away The morning let your ego bruise But what I wouldn't give For the hope I Used to find in a, a case of lion's head and folks of different minds because though we didn't share opinions, we share loud American ideals. Friends made over arguments in an early morning bus. I need an early morning bus. There's hope behind the bluster because though Main Street may not sell. Full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days you leave your ego through But what I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find And chase the lion's head Folks of different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz What I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because though we did not Share opinions we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments in an early morning bus. I need an early morning bus.